this Sunday comes from the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I've invited some helpers to come and share the story with us. Jesus and his disciples sailed across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Opposite Galilee. Did you hear that? Opposite the territory of the Jewish people, of Torah obedience, of synagogue authority, opposite those who are clean and moral, opposite where Jesus had announced the kingdom of God with amazing deeds and words. When Jesus stepped ashore, he met a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house. He lived among the tombs. Among the tombs, cut off from family, isolated from community, living but among the dead, a homeless person, a zombie. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell to his knees, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The evil spirit in him recognized Jesus more clearly than the scribes and priests and teachers of the law? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Some helpful context. Many times the evil spirit had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept him under guard, he broke the chains and was driven by the demon into solitary Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, Because many demons had gone into him, and they begged him repeatedly not to command them to go into the abyss. The abyss, the abode of imprisoned spirits, the netherworld. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and Jesus gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. But they thought going into unclean animals and causing them to go into the sea was an escape from Jesus' power. They were obviously mistaken. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man. No more demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and the people were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell everyone how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This, this is the word of the Lord.
had a lot of competition vying for the role of demon possessed pigs there. <laughs> Actually, I think the fire alarm was demon possessed this morning. This past Wednesday marked the second anniversary of my first day on the staff of this church. And I really appreciate the big week-long party that you all threw for me. With all the kids coming and the singing and the dancing, it was really touching. I appreciate that. My first day, my first morning here, I climbed into a van in the parking lot, a van loaded with high school youth, driven by Mark Van Bullock, to go on the Appalachian Service Project trip week involving sleeping on air mattresses on the floor of classrooms in an elementary school in rural Tennessee, a week of showering in makeshift outdoor showers enclosed by plastic which would wave like flags in the wind, sharing the school's child-sized communal bathrooms with 180 teenagers. You get the picture? I thought maybe the search committee that had called me to Riverside had changed their mind and was trying to send me a message. Perhaps now you can see how this story in Luke about wild nakedness, uncontrollable impulses, and demon-possessed pigs would be appropriate for this anniversary Sunday, at least symbolically. It is a strange and intimidating story, an almost frightening story in Luke. Its jarring tone only partially softened by a sort of happy ending. Jesus wasn't on the way to the Gerasene region. It was out of his way. Jesus was making an effort to go to the very part of town that nobody in his race or society would ever go to. He had to sail across the Sea of Galilee just to get there, and through a violent storm on top of that. So easy just not to go, or to turn around. No one would have objected or criticized him, but he did go through the stormy forces of chaos which he mastered all the way to this profane, swine-herding, Gentile community opposite Galilee. And as we read the whole Gospel of Luke, I think we come to the conclusion that he went because the love of God compelled him to go. He had to go or he would not have been faithful to his identity as Jesus, Son of the Most High God. God doesn't wait for a person to clean himself or herself up before God enters their lives. Nothing can thwart the divine initiative for relationship, even with the so-called ungodly people. And so we are moving through the Gospel of Luke this summer, and fall, and in our worship and preaching, and, and we know that from the beginning of this gospel, Jesus' mission is to reverse the fortunes of those of low estate and to preach good news to the poor. This becomes realized eschatology in the healings and exorcisms that follow. 
Luke tells us that Jesus had cast demons out of Mary and some of his other followers. So now here we have a demon-possessed Gerasene man. He's homeless, living in a cemetery, a quiet neighborhood, you might think. He must be mentally unbalanced, perhaps schizophrenic with psychotic episodes. He's naked, screams blood curling threats to the townspeople who haven't been able to even keep him locked up. He's like a wild, uncontrollable grizzly bear. We could try to give him a diagnosis in contemporary terms, but it's really not helpful or germane to the story. In Luke's telling of it, this man is the personification of defilement, sickness, and evil. But he's more than that. He's somebody's son. Maybe someone's brother, or spouse, or ex-spouse, or father. The point is, he had a family. And I can't help thinking about his family. I wonder what his family is like. Maybe his mother has been negligent his father absent, contributing to his disease. Maybe there's a legacy of mental illness across generations in his family. Maybe he was his mother's favorite son and his father's whipping boy. And being raised in the middle of marital strife, his fragile soul couldn't take it anymore. Maybe his family struggled with all of their strength and invested all of their resources to help their troubled son get better, to no avail. Maybe they pray, and have prayed for many years for some Gerasene God in heaven to come down and help their son and fix their family. Maybe their weary hearts have borne all the pain and shame and heartbreak anyone could endure. So now they've grown hardened just to survive. Can you imagine? Maybe the afflicted man's dad takes long walks early in the morning before even the swine herders are awake to steal a glimpse of his, of his beloved lost son out amidst the tombs. Maybe the man's sister has become a social worker the man's ex-girlfriend lives in fear that he'll show up again in the middle of the night, naked and howling. His childhood buddy avoids any mention of his name ever since the day he attacked his schoolmates on the playground. Of these or numerous other possible scenarios, we don't know the truth. It's all conjecture. We do know that this Demoniac had a family and a community, and his illness had to affect them all. His neighbors got involved trying to control and then isolate the trouble. They couldn't handle having him there in the community, but it was at least comforting for them to know that the demons were in him, not in them. 
So he served a purpose. When the power of God through Jesus Christ made this person whole, it also had to affect them all, the family and the village, even if the healed man never said a word about it, which of course he did. As I said, I help thinking about our families. I think we carry around some misconceptions or myths about our families. Mistaken beliefs, if you will. The first is to even think about what is a family. When we first started talking about having a family retreat here at Riverside, there were all sorts of questions. Well, who is it for? Is it for the old people? Is it for the young people? Do I have to be married? Do I have to have children? Well, I'm widowed. I, well, I don't have any kids. Well, I'm single. I'm this. I'm, so who, who comprises a family? Is it a husband and wife and 2.2 children? The reality is that the data from the Census Bureau tells us that there are 14 million single parents in our country raising 22 million children under the age of 21. There are 96 million single adults. So if you're single and looking for a date, odds look better. 31% of children are in our country are raised by one parent or no parents. 330,000 children are born to teenage mothers. 75% of divorced persons eventually do remarry, and the majority of those people have children. So do a many, many blended families. Children compose 24% of the population in America, but they compose 36% of the population that is in poverty. So, what is a family? I just look at Peggy's and my family, our extended family. If you, you cast the net out far enough, you'll, you'll see multiple divorces, you'll see blended families, you'll see childless families, you'll see long-term widowhood, addiction, promiscuity, abuse, it's all there. Just in that combined family tree. The second mistaken belief that we have about families is that they ought to be self-sufficient. That they really don't need help or shouldn't need help. Kenneth Keniston wrote a book called All Our Children, and in it he said that uh, our, our uh, assumption is that there is something morally good about family self-sufficiency. And in the face of hard evidence to the contrary, we begin to assume that good families are self-sufficient. Good families possess the moral virtues of industrial industriousness and self-reliance. They don't ask for help. And any family who needs help, well, there's just something wrong with them, something weak. There is a myth of self-sufficiency 
that blinds us to the real workings of family life. Families are not now, Keniston says, nor were they ever self-sufficient. Reminds me of something someone said recently in our church when she was talking about her involvement in the church and her family, and she said something like, and I'm paraphrasing, that when she started having relationships here, it really helped her and she really appreciated it. But when people started reaching out to her children and calling her children by name, well, then they were saints. So there is some sense of shame when a family isn't self-sufficient. And somehow they admit they need help. There is a third myth that's related to this one. And that is that there, there was a golden age of family life, which our church and should help us recover and return to. That if we could just go back to that golden age and be like that, it would resolve our anxiety and smooth our conflicts and we have a wide path to a healthy family for the future. Ward and Judy Cleaver, even Archie and Edith Bunker would be an improvement. My uncle, one of my uncles, I remember when I was a child, he, he ran off with a promiscuous 16-year-old girl who was much younger than him. Together they had three kids. Eventually uh, they were both became alcoholics, eventually divorced. Uh, they both got remarried, had more kids, and on and on it went. That was not a story from the 90s. That happened in the 50s and early 60s. Maybe we should just Get back to biblical families. You know, good old Bible families like, like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Rebecca and Isaac and Joseph and his brothers and David and Bathsheba and Hosea. And, oh yeah, that's got some problems with that. And even Jesus' own family. Reality looks different for every family. Face it. Maybe there's an addiction. Maybe there's an affair, a divorce out-of-control son or daughter. For many of us, it might be quite a bit less dramatic. A weariness that comes from living in the tension of sharing the same square footage with people you say you love. Or maybe the fatigue that comes from the stress of career dissatisfaction. Marriage that has gone flat. Too many nights out at the t-ball field sheer boredom of family life. For others, it's an uninvited guest that shatters the family. An illness or an accident. Someone loses a job. Something goes wrong. What you hope for is no longer what you are living. The common denominator is we are left holding an image of family that will never be able to realize we're steeped in this reality. Now what really makes this difficult is that I think sometimes even 
Christian church where we are called to be a community of grace and forgiveness and acceptance, there is a pressure to appear to always be a happy family. People who are on top of it all have a great marriage, well-adjusted kids, successful careers, and whatever problems are very manageable. Parenting is intimidating enough if we raise the bar to unrealistic levels that not even the Bible itself portrays. How could that possibly help our families? Unrealistic pictures paralyze parents. Unyielding demands cause families to lose hope. Parents become preoccupied with trying to keep up an ideal image that can actually take away from their capacity and drain their capacity to really build a family in a healthy way. The story of Jesus' encounter with the Gerasene demoniac demonstrates that the good news is not that we are to put our hope in our great and stable families that can provide all we need for a secure and a healthy environment for everyone, Good news is rather a call to commit our lives to Christ, to commit ourselves to the kingdom of God, a commitment that impacts and orders and maybe even shapes up our family and our community. Jesus sent this man back to the village, and he also rejects our attempts to have a safe private religion. He sends us out to become part of a larger family, a family held together not by our similarities, not by our appearing successful and happy all the time, but by a shared vision, a living out of God's presence in this particular time and place. It is a call to live as a family, covenanted, covenanted to one another, as we did today with Trey. There is a common memory that we share, a story, a common vision for the future, common practices and lifestyle we share or espouse to. We're at our best, as Steve said, when we're engaged in multi-generational ministry like BBS and RBI, mission trips with our youth and retreats at Camp Montgomery, mentoring our time for man, maybe just listening to each other as we talk about working through marital issues. I wonder how the man was received back at his home. Was there his bedroom waiting for him just the way it was left? Did friends of the family come together and throw a big party? Was a ring and a robe immediately put on this right-minded man? Or did an elder sibling throw cold water on such ideas? Did the neighborhood association encourage the family to move to another part of town now that this weird son is back? Did the swineherders sue the man's family to recover their loss? Again, we don't know. 
Jesus here in sending the man back is, in a sense, bequeathing the responsibility and the authority to effect communal change to those in the community who have felt Jesus' presence and power. Perhaps what these people need is not Jesus to come and do a miracle there for them, but rather the living testimony of one who has been healed and restored. The man were to leave, how easy it would be for his neighbors to revert to the status quo. With his constant presence, renewed in mind, body, and spirit, they must reckon with God's determined action for life in their midst. At Riverside, as in the Gerasene region, it's not always easy to welcome the social and economic implications of the kingdom of God. It's not even easy in our families when someone who has been disturbed or troubled or away begins to change and get well and comes home. But at Riverside, we affirm that the grace of God brings and can bring new life to all families, whatever they look like. In fact, we say the missional language of baptism includes this idea of rejecting evil in all of its forms. Baptismal candidates and confirmants are asked to resist Satan and the spiritual forces of evil. To be baptized means to commit oneself to going to the opposite side with Jesus. So we can declare that God claims us once again, once and always. We are God's beloved children, beloved families, no matter what kind of family we've had or now have. Thanks be to God. Amen. I now invite us to bring forth the first fruits of our